0: dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo. Modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want you to think about this. In just a little over a year, the first American voters will get their ballots in the mail. Think about that. We are now just about a year from election day. I know we think that election day happens in November, and it does, but American voters across this country in different states will start receiving their ballots. Some will receive them in early September, some in mid-September, some in late September. Guys, we're 12 months out. I can't believe it any more than you probably can. That's why I need you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up for our field team to make sure that every last voter in the pro-democracy movement is contacted and gets out to the polls. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Madison Horton, cybersecurity expert and 2022 Democratic candidate for the United States Senate from the great state of Oklahoma. Prior to her run for Senate, she worked as a global cyber portfolio lead with Siemens Energy, as the senior manager of cybersecurity and privacy with PricewaterhouseCoopers, and as a security consultant with FusionX. Currently, she's the CEO of the cybersecurity firm Critical Fault and is coming to us today from Oklahoma City. Madison, welcome.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I love that you said the great state of Oklahoma.
0: Well, you know, it's not quite as great as Texas, but we'll do that show next year when we're both in the SEC. Okay, so let's talk. You're from Oklahoma. Tell us a little bit about how you got into cybersecurity, but also how you decided to run for office as a Democrat in Oklahoma, which I have to assume is a fairly endangered species.
1: So. You know, I'm from a small town called Stillwell, Oklahoma. No one can point it out on a map unless you're from Stillwell, Oklahoma. Lowest life expectancy in the United States. So you can imagine, don't necessarily have the uh, deep tech background there. But I'm a seventh generation daughter of a farmer in the state of Oklahoma. So I learned grit and I learned hard work. It was just inherited. So, you know, when I was looking for a professional pathway, cyber was not it. I was working at the Boys and Girls Club, thought that I was always going to teach kids and help develop leadership skills and teach women's classes. But I moved away kind of trying to get out of my environment, learn and expose myself to other opportunity. And really out of a whim, you know, one of my four odd nin jobs was introduced to some cybersecurity consultants. They offered me a job and that was about 15 years ago, which uh, it makes me just like cringe saying that out loud, but I got incredibly lucky. There was an opportunity that presented itself and I walked through the door, of course, terrified, but excited about the opportunity. So like I said, you read my bio. I've been in this space for 15 years, anything from ethical hacking to digital forensics and breach response. And it played a huge role in me running for office because initially throughout my path, whether it was working with tech companies in the entrepreneurial space, whether it was working with customers to understand regulation and compliance, they never married up. The industry was so much further ahead of whether that be policy or to help entrepreneurs in the innovation space, cost, or just like the lack of understanding entirely of the application of a compliance and regulation that's being built. So it's just out of frustration and then just. The rhetoric that was coming out of politics that is still coming out of politics and the lack of understanding of the impact that that has on both our voters, both our allies, as well as just our elections as a whole. So really brooded out of just overall frustration.
0: As so many things are right. And the difference is you can be frustrated and scream at the television or you can get frustrated and do something about it. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the cybersecurity stuff and just generally about lack of understanding in the policy space. And this is I'm going to oversimplify this, and it is not doing you a service, and I'm sorry for that, which is when Mark Zuckerberg used to deign to go before Congress, and you'd see all these old guys up on the dais, and they clearly had no idea, A, what Facebook was, or B, how it worked, right? No understanding. I have to assume that it's really not that much better now from a policy perspective, which, yes, within states, within government, you know, within the federal government, within different departments, you know, there are people who really understand this. But I would venture to say that there are a lot of policymakers, Madison, who don't understand the difference between, say, cybersecurity, how the Internet works, social media, all those things. And like what the I.T. guy does. Right. They probably see it as all just the same thing.
1: Absolutely. Or it's something I mean, I I can't tell you the number of times that people assumed that I was in the military because I worked in the world of cybersecurity. And, you know, is it getting better I think there are better collaborations and better opportunities being presented for the public sector and the private sector to come together because, you know, the government's never going to be able to keep pace with the private sector. It's just never going to happen again because that's where the innovation is happening. That's where the creation is going to happen. And, you know, frankly, people don't want to go work for the federal government anymore. It's not an appealing job. So is the public sector understanding more about the industry. I would say some of the government agencies like CISA, I think they're doing a phenomenal job of ensuring that we are focused on our critical infrastructure. Now, I would say our elected officials. I mean, when you have the average age of 67 in office and we're talking about nuanced technology and that's above the acumen of, you know, sending an email, then, uh, yeah, we're going to have some disconnect, you know, the hearing that you're referencing, read that individuals were saying, "Well, well, how do you make money?" And Mark Zuckerberg was starting to talk about like how ads work and how you know the analytics work in the background, and that's just touching the surface. Uh, I think it was last
0: year or maybe two years ago. I interviewed a woman named Nicole Perlroth uh, who used to write for the New York Times. She wrote a book called "This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends" about like the worst things that could happen in the cybersecurity thing, and it is it will keep you up at night if you read it. And, you know, she starts, and remember, this is pre-Ukraine war. She starts with a cyber attack from Russia launched at Kiev, right? It shuts everything down. And, I mean, Russia's embroiled in a land war with Ukraine now. Have we seen as much of that kind of stuff coming from the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg? Obviously, the guy who ran it, Prigozhin, just got blown out of the sky last week, so he's not going to be doing that this year or next. But do you see, as someone who understands this world from both a policy perspective and, as you mentioned, critical infrastructure perspective, but also in the industrial space, do you still worry about that kind of stuff? Is Russia still a key perpetrator? Is it still North Korea? Are they the bad actors? Are they state actors? Or are they, as Donald Trump would say, fat guys in their mom's basements?
1: Well, stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason. But no, I do not think that it is just, you know, quoting Donald Trump here, as you said, it is not just fat guys in their mom's basements. I think that that is a significant understatement the nation state actors that we are up against are highly sophisticated highly organized highly funded we need to start thinking about large entities like the accentures like the pwc's like the deloitte's they are that size of organizations that are literally just like a hack for services offering right and they're just selling their services to hack whatever target now, we can talk about motivations. We can talk about impact. But, you know, your question was, does this keep me up at night? You know, I don't know how recently the woman that you're referencing wrote the book. But, you know, when I was in my first entry-level job, then I was sitting, you know, outside nuclear power facilities and, and feeling the hum of the, under the, my feet. Of that that power running through the power lines from the nuclear power facility, you know, just to the distribution centers. And I was like, holy crap. I think that was the first moment. And we're talking 15 years ago where, you know, you had to have a top secret clearance to understand the threat actors that were coming against our critical infrastructure. And we found them then. And so for people to say, is this still a problem? Yes, we're just waking up to it being a problem. This has been an underserved industry, and so no one understands it, and they don't understand the threat. And so my role as an advocate for this space and a love for foreign policy and, you know, both the country in which I live in, then it's my responsibility to ensure that individuals, no matter their background, know the threat and the motivations behind it.
0: Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo. Modern management made simple. So you're sitting in the nuclear power station. You feel the hum of the electricity. This is 15 years ago. So if 15 years ago, you were worried about it. Now it's 15 years later. There's still a threat out there, but far too few people understand what that means.
1: That's correct. I mean, that moment that I'm I'm talking about was that, holy crap, you know, being face to face with a nuclear power facility is something that most people only see or hear about Then you really can feel the power behind, you know, the devices that we're looking to protect. And so to think that we've had nation state actors, whether that be Russia or China, actively engaged and within these systems, that is terrifying. And we've only become more aware as a general public because of events that are happening within Russia and Ukraine, because it's right in front of us and we can't look away.
0: But aren't we that much more? vulnerable then? I mean, we've seen what the Russians did to Kiev a few years ago. We saw what our own intelligence services were able to do to the Iranian nuclear plant, where they actually got somebody to, you know, figure out how to, what they call, jump the air gap from the digital world to the analog world. But that's really where this comes down to it. When these things go bad, they have real world consequences. It's not like, oh, my TikTok doesn't work anymore. Twitter went down. I mean, Elon's doing that on his own. The power grid shuts off. The water doesn't work. The farmers who rely on the satellites to be able to understand where the crops are going, like all that stuff can shut down. So tell us a little bit about, is it so hard to break through on this front because to tell people what we're up against could scare the hell out of them? And there's sort of like, what am I going to do about it anyway?
1: Well, it's like your insurance policy. Individuals are like, well, you might get in a car accident, so you should probably have car insurance, which there's policies that say, hey, you have to get car insurance because you're going to get in a car wreck. We know car wrecks are going to happen. We've seen them all every day, unfortunately. But when have we seen a widespread blackout in the United States? We haven't seen that happen. And so we're working on what-if scenarios, but it's not even that simple. It's not as if we have individuals working within our critical infrastructure saying, hey, this is not a concern. This is not a problem. It's just we're talking about legacy systems. So we're talking about like think hand cranks hand cranks that were never meant to operate in the digital world that are now being retrofitted with you know IoT devices with you know sensors and you know a, n- a number of things that were never meant to be connected and so we've rapidly rapidly increased the digitalization of these devices and opened up so many vectors for bad actors and so what we're doing is playing a game of catch up And
0: I guess the other part, too, is, is there a little bit of if we're trying to protect everything, we're protecting nothing going on, too?
1: So the White House put out this strategy. It's called zero trust. Now, this is something that the private sector has been developing for quite some time. And the whole concept around zero trust is focused on, you know, what we call your crown jewels. So what's going to be the potential biggest impact? So, you know, coming back to the nuclear power facility. The biggest concern is that someone would blow up the nuclear power facility. So we would ensure that, you know, all of our focus would be on how would someone get in. You can even talk about your house. Someone's probably going to come through the front door, right? So let's focus all of our attention on the front door. But if our safe is upstairs in the bedroom, in the master closet, then maybe we make sure that the safe is is locked. You can't just get through it through a basic like lock picking kit. You know it's hidden behind a painting, behind some clothes. You you see what I'm going here. And so it's it's a layered security type of concept, so that you aren't just pepper spraying in the wind and and hoping that the expenses that you are accruing to build up your systems aren't in vain.
0: So years ago, I did some crisis communications work, and I remember I was with a corporate executive. We're driving all over the place to deal with this crisis that this company had caused. And he said, why don't we keep guys like you around more often? I said, well, that's a great question. You see, because you see PR like you see HR. First and foremost, it's a cost center. And you guys hate cost centers. Second, you don't understand what it does. And third, and perhaps most importantly, we only appear when something has gone wrong and you have to do something you don't want to do. And I feel like, is there a little bit of that with the cybersecurity thing too? Which is, it's probably, if you're doing it correctly, a significant expense. The guys, mostly guys who are running these companies, have no clue how it works, but they're told they have to have it. They don't believe it because nothing ever happens. And then if something happens, they'll be like, why didn't anybody tell me I need this?
1: So I would have said yes, you know, 10 years ago, but the industry has matured. And so when I was saying that, you know, the public sector, you know, hasn't caught up with the private sector and understanding cybersecurity. I mean from a real technical perspective and how that impacts policy. But I would say within the private sector, then they we understand. Unless you're an immature organization, you probably just don't have the funds to invest appropriately. But your large organizations understand why you need to invest in cybersecurity because they're getting hit with ransomware or phishing attacks every single freaking day and most likely have already had some type of data breach that has caused some type of significant damage from a PR perspective. You know, there's a number of them that we could bring up. And so, you know, I would say that C-level executives understand the reason why they need to invest.
0: Well, and just, you mentioned phishing, which is, you know, getting the the fake email. And boy, those are really good nowadays. I mean, for something so simple, right? I mean, I don't know whether or not they're using AI, whether or not these are humans who have figured out that they read through your emails. Maybe it's both. If you said that these organizations can be incredibly large, incredibly well-resourced. So you could have somebody who says, okay, Madison's our target. We're already in her email. Go figure out, like, the kinds of emails she gets how she responds to them, and go write something. And before you know it, click, and then they're in everything.
1: I mean, you bring up AI and how that has enabled hackers. What it has done for uh, the bad guys it actually, they don't necessarily need to be as skilled. They don't necessarily have to spend as much time, as much money, because you know, the very basics of AI can craft a, an elegant email. And, you know, if I copy, paste, read your LinkedIn into ChatGPT and say, hey, craft a friendly email to read, then it's going to say, hey, read, loved that Texas game. Don't know what the score is. They probably lost to Oklahoma. Real bummer.
0: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> it's very painful because it's so true.
1: <laughs> but my point is it's, it's going to build trust and, and camaraderie and it's going to understand how to operate with you. Right. And we can create an AI capability or tool to just continue to have that conversation with you via email and then to actually write the script or what we call in the cybersecurity world to actually create the weapon that is going to be used to actually breach your organization's perimeter. So it's becoming much easier. um, And we have to understand that both in the way the cybersecurity industry builds tools to prevent against these types of tactics and understand those techniques and they're called signatures and it's, we're also going to have to understand it from a government perspective when we talk about you know what is the boundaries between leveraging innovation and then protecting american values whatever that may be and as well as the first amendment this episode is brought to you by shopify
0: So let's switch to a little bit of politics now. So we'll zoom out of the nerdery and we'll zoom back into Oklahoma. So you and I were talking last week, and it's interesting you brought this up because when I was in Colorado in July, I heard this too, which is, why is it that Republicans take rural voters for granted and Democrats don't talk to them?
1: You know, I think there's assumptions about rural voters across the board that they are just going to vote Republican. Or perhaps they are not going to vote. And, you know, as someone who is from rural Oklahoma, you know, majority of my family are a combination of independent, Democrat, Republican. And so to me, that sounds like the general population. But it's just assumed, you know, you brought up my campaign for U.S. Senate last year. You know, the intent of my campaign was to show up where individuals don't typically show up to have the real conversation. You know, I don't like not knowing. And if I want to solve a problem, then I want to be as effective about it as possible. And that's understanding and being in the trenches and being where everyone shows up. So I don't have an answer of, of why that is, is a lot more logical than they just assume that they're Republican.
0: And look, I mean, Oklahoma is a very conservative state. There's no question about it. But I think that one thing that we try and share with our friends in the Democratic Party, is just because someone lives outside an urban, suburban, even ex-urban area, does not mean that these folks are uninformed, they're unintelligent, they're uneducated. There's always this talk of, you know, voting against their own economic interests. You could make that argument, but I think the problem I have with the predicate of that argument Madison, is that you're sort of assuming that they don't know what's good or bad for them. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't millions of rural voters who are wrapped up in MAGA and Trumpism and everything else, but there are millions of guys like me, Generation X white guys who went to college, who live in the suburbs, who are too. So what's your sense of it? As you traveled around a place that you grew up in, but you're, you're traveled around as a candidate, what's your sense of what's going on in rural America that, frankly, my
1: listeners and I need to know? Sure. I mean, to be frank, and and I hate, I really do, I I hate this whole concept of, well, rural voters are most likely Republican or ignorant or uninformed. I want to challenge that because I would say that they're probably more informed than some of our suburban areas or our urban cores. And I say that because they're being faced on a day-to-day basis with the impact of bad policy. You know, when you think about access to just broadband, when you're talking about access to, you know, decent food, clean water, then do you think that that's happening in our urban centers? I don't think so, because we would have businesses that would rally behind the city or whoever they had to, to ensure that the kids got the best education, that they had the best water, that they had the access to the best food. Why? Because that's the economic center of a state, of a whatever we're talking about. And so they wouldn't allow it to stand. And so, you know, in in my mind, as a as a Democrat or as someone who just gives a damn about individuals and people, it's not about self-interest, is that Hey, I want to solve a problem. What is the problem? And so, as traveling around the state, going to all 77 counties, you know, twice, then people didn't care what party affiliation that I had. I mean, I, I literally had a story. They said, you know what? And it, this is in the panhandle of Oklahoma. Okay. So, one of the most least dense places, flat as heck. This is the place what people think about when you think about Oklahoma, right? And they said to me, you know what, you have my vote because you don't drive a plane or you don't fly a plane to get here. You drove on those same roads that I have to and you see the damage to my truck, which is bare basics. So you're telling me if I just show up, then you're going to vote for me? Why don't we have higher standards?
0: Jamie Harrison, right, when he was running for U.S. Senate in South Carolina, told the story. He's like, you know, you came down that road. Republicans have come down that road. Democrats have come down that road. You know, it never happens to that road. It never gets fixed. But again, if that truck, if you're working as a, as a sole proprietor, right, you, or you've got a couple of guys on the truck or you're going out to the farm because you fix stuff or whatever, like that truck is your office. That truck is the way you get to and from how you're going to make money for your family. And the road making it more difficult is literally going to cost you money, right? But again, if you live in the panhandle of Oklahoma, And no one ever comes to see you except when they fly in to say, hey, how are you? I love you. All right. I got to go. And then they turn back around again. You're like, it doesn't matter anyway. And
1: you know what? For those people, you can certainly understand why they feel that way. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're not showing up. They don't know who you are. Right. There's so much distrust in government right now that what are you going to say? That I'm going to vote for someone purely because you threw your name on the ballot and you threw some Facebook ads Out? I don't think so. You know, you had to show up in my community and earn my vote. And that's the way that it should be. That story that I told you is one of thousands. You know, we had conversations that that weren't out in the panhandle, but just, you know, northeast Oklahoma. And I met a nurse practitioner. It was the coolest thing. They took us to lunch with this, you know, the one Mexican restaurant in the town out of three restaurants. Her daughter came, her son came, and the, the town banker, the city mayor, right? All came, we were sitting around and we were having conversation and this nurse practitioner was telling me that she has something like twenty four hundred patients. And I said, Well, what do you mean? She says, Well, we don't have a doctor, we don't have a hospital here. And I said, Well, where do you practice? She's like, Well, the veterinarian clinic is is been open, so I've been using it, but we're trying to open a new facility. And I turned to her kids, I said, When is your mother home? What time does your mom get home from work? They said, Well eight or nine, but, you know, she's working or patients are calling in. she's having to leave. They don't have ambulances. They don't have emergency services. And so this one woman is holding her community together. I mean, these are basic services. It is. It's incredible. And these are the amazing, amazing people who are ensuring that our rural areas, you know, have some type of community support. And it's phenomenal.
0: I'll just tell you, I mean, I'm not a candidate. I'm not going to be a candidate. God love you. You're far braver than I am. But I'll tell you, I love getting out on the road and I love getting out to see people because you realize how many people, whether or not it's this nurse practitioner, or whoever it is, are doing incredible work for a vast number of people. They're always overextended. They're always underpaid. There's never enough money. There's never enough bodies. And somehow they get up and they do it every single day. They get up and they do it every day. And you're just like, If I were them, I'd probably lose my mind, you know, or I'd collapse. But, like, they have the fortitude and the wherewithal to make it happen. But let me ask you a question. This is a little bit related, but it's specific to Oklahoma. Now, you have this guy. He's your superintendent of instruction. And he does these insane videos from his car. And they're usually not about public instruction in Oklahoma. What is it with red states and public education, because in a state like Oklahoma, it can't be the unions because you're a right to work state. It's Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, all the way to like, oh, yeah, we hate teachers unions. The people who hate teachers unions most are the ones who have to deal with them the least. Right. So what is it with this guy and what is he saying about public education in Oklahoma? I mean, you have flagship universities. You mentioned OU. You've got Oklahoma State, Tulsa. You've got, you know, some great public universities But why is it so hard for a kid from, you know, Ponca City or wherever to get a good public education and make sure they can go to one of those schools? Or if they don't want to go to college, that they can do whatever it is they'd like to do, if that's a trade or a service or whatever the case might be.
1: You have opened up a can. You know, individuals like our state superintendent, I mean, they're riding a wave, you know, to hear their own voice, not to make an impact. There are sound bites that I think candidates or people who are running for office find that are popular, that allow them to get attention, that allow them to serve their own narrative. And that's what our state superintendent has done. You know the things that he's accusing our teachers of the, whether that be, you know, this woke ideology. I'm, I'm going to start a new phrase, replacing woke. Who knows what, what's going to come out of it, but I am so tired of hearing about it. I'm tired of it because of the fact that it is a word that is used to fire up a base, but no one will define it. Like, I just want to come up with something else. Like, we'll, we'll figure out how to replace woke with, you know, math, science, reading, with actual substance and problems that we need to solve so to ensure that our students do get a substantial education. But
0: that's, I think, the issue, Madison. You just hit the nail on the head, which is substance versus performative bullshit. Pardon my French. And, and for it, people that get mad at me when I cuss, I'm sorry, but once in a while it's necessary. This guy wants to sit in his car and talk about woke and denigrate teachers and you know, ban books and all this other stuff because otherwise, and this is why I say that, like, Trumpism the poison has soaked in because they don't have any ideas because to have an idea, Madison, is to mean you're responsible
1: and they don't want to be responsible for anything. They just want to bitch and moan. And I think that we need to get to the crux of it. Right. And that's what I said in the beginning is that we as a general electorate have to have higher standards for the people that run for office. We have to ensure that these individuals are not running for their own ego, you know, to be an elected official means to be in a place of service. And what we're hearing being spewed from our state superintendent, again, is to elevate his own platform. And we've turned politics into a reality TV series.
0: Right. Politics is supposed to be boring. Campaigns should be inspiring, but governance is supposed to be boring. We elect you people. We hire you people, in effect, for a certain term so that you can go do the work that, like, we need you to do, right? Like, I don't need more crazy people screaming at me from my phone, right? I can find that. But again, that's the thing, and you must see it every day as you've campaigned, is, like, there are people out there for whom ego is the only thing. This guy's superintendent of public instruction. Does he want to be, I don't know, if he's a lawyer, let's say he wants to be attorney general, he wants to be lieutenant governor, he wants to be governor, he wants to be U.S. senator, he wants to run for Congress, whatever it is. It's not about doing the job he has. I mean, we're now, you know, as we're recording this, Madison, we're seeing this over, you know, with Ron DeSantis as there's a hurricane bearing down. Like if you're going to run for governor of Florida, you must understand that like you are hurricane responder in chief. And if you don't want that job, you shouldn't do the job. You shouldn't run for that office. Right. If you're also trying to run for president, sorry, means you don't get to go to Iowa for the next few days. And that's the other part, too, is doing a job well typically means you're focused on doing the job you have. Now that's, I know I'm sounding like a Pollyanna. Everybody wants to move up the chain. I get it. But, you know, and this is the one thing that has always confused me is that so many politicians, so many public servants would be so much more popular and so much more effective if they just did the best job they could at the job they were hired to do, as opposed to being like, here I am, you know, we're going to get rid of, you know, the and of course, it's always ironic, right, Madison? We're going to get rid of Fahrenheit 451 and 1984, right? And Aldous Huxley, right? Like we're we're going to get rid of all the dystopian novels that tell you to think for yourself, right? Because God forbid we, you do that.
1: Sure. But th- I mean, all the things that you're telling me are like saying is, okay, well, what do we do about it? You know, you shouldn't want to just move up in an elected official position. No, you ran for office to be in Congress. If you're being an effective leader, then sure, I hope that you get reelected. And if you want to run for U.S. Senate, fantastic. That is the will of a democracy. But we should not be able, and I say we as if I'm an elected official, but elected officials should not be able to get rich because they run for office. People should not be able to stay in office for 15, 20, 30, 40 years or get to the point where they're having a stroke on public television, right? I mean, who is running our country at that point? Sorry, I'm going off on tangents because it's frustrating to me. It's incredibly frustrating.
0: Let me ask you this as we start to round the corner toward home. Being a candidate, what did you learn? What was the most, like when you got home after what must have been incredibly long days, a lot of nights you didn't get home and you ultimately, look, running for office and not winning is you know, that's tough duty. What did you learn?
1: I appreciate the question. And, and you're right. I mean, there was a lot of nights we didn't come home, but we had a sprinter van that we stayed in across all different parts of this state. And honestly, being able to travel to every single corner of the state, then I fell in love with my state again. I fell in love with it, not just because of the the diversity within landscape, but I fell in love with it because of the mayors who are in Hooker, Oklahoma, because of the nurse practitioners who are, you know, the lifeblood of their community. These amazing people who care so much about what is going on in, in their home, and they want to do something about it, and they show up and they, they're an advocate for, you know, their grandmother who, you know, is having problems with prescription drug medication. I mean, it's, it's just basic things. And so I fell in love with my state. I fell in love with the compassion and the love of people and seeing that and how open people were to just have good dialogue. And it reinvigorated me to continue on this path to serve.
0: Well, and thank God for it. All right. Now, aside from your rooting for the University of Oklahoma, which uh, or Oklahoma University, I
1: guess. (laughs) We'll send you a hat.
0: Uh, No, please don't. If I lose a bet or something, I'll wear it for you for a day. But crimson and cream, not my colors. So where can we find you online? Where can we find your work? If folks are looking for you, where can they find you?
1: Online, you know, it's just madisonhorn.com or on the good old Instagram or Twitter. I guess we're supposed to call it X now is going to be just madisonhorn.ok.
0: As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok as long as both of those are around, at Reed Galen, on threads and Instagram, at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Madison Horn, thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, google or however you listen don't forget to leave a five-star review to connect with us follow us on twitter at project lincoln and for more information on our movement to join our mailing list subscribe to our newsletter or make a contribution to our efforts visit lincolnproject.us if you want to message the podcast directly please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us and if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.